It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. One evening in late 1884, a young man spotted 46-year-old Charles Chilton Moore walking on the street. Moore, the infamous atheist, had printed several biting essays mocking the Christian Bible in his newspaper, Bluegrass Blade. Full of righteous indignation, the young man stalked across the road, right up to Moore's side. Moore turned, startled, but before he could react any further, the young man drew his arm back and punched him in the side of his face. Moore's glasses shattered and flew off his head, leaving a bleeding wound on his forehead. But Moore didn't go down. Instead, he whirled on the young man and raged. The man started to draw his gun, then saw Moore was unarmed, so he holstered it. It wouldn't be necessary. The middle-aged, bespectacled newspaper editor was no match for him in a physical fight. How wrong the young man was. Two decades of farm labor gave Moore the build of a prize fighter. He delivered blow after blow until the younger man scrambled down the road seeking safety. Eventually, bruised and bloodied, they were both arrested for disturbing the peace. This was Moore's first arrest related to his scathing and wildly unpopular bluegrass blade. But it wouldn't be his last. For over a decade, he would fight for his freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and most importantly, his freedom from religion. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're examining the career of one of America's most famous atheists, Charles Chilton Moore, and the blasphemous journalism that landed him in court time and time again. 
Next week, we'll follow the larger legal battles Moore faced as he pushed the limits of freedom of the press and the separation of church and state. In the mid-1870s, Charles Chilton Moore was struggling to make ends meet. Other men in Kentucky found success breeding thoroughbred horses for racing or growing rye for whiskey distilleries. But Moore, now in his late 30s, rejected vice entirely. He couldn't abide a living made from gambling and drunkenness. So instead, Moore turned back to one of his earliest talents, journalism. Like many educated men in the 19th century, he had dabbled in writing in college. His first major piece had been published in the Lexington Observer and Reporter when he was just 19 years old. He was inspired by a walk he took across his family's sprawling estate. As he crossed a field, he startled some crows. The vast number of crows in the area was a long-standing problem for farmers, as the birds were not only noisy, but destroyed crops. It occurred to Moore that young rooks, a member of the crow family, were eaten in England. This made Moore wonder. Perhaps eating young crows could be a plausible answer to the issue of hunger. Many parts of the world were suffering from famines at the time, and Moore felt crows were an obvious yet overlooked solution. He penned an essay titled The Edibility of Crow, and his father submitted it for publication in the Lexington Observer and Reporter. The idiom, eating crow, had recently come into fashion as a phrase akin to eat your words. So when Moore's article was published, his proposal was interpreted as a piece of political satire rather than a practical solution to world hunger. Though Moore insisted he meant his proposal literally, he learned an important lesson. An article about actually eating crow would have garnered little interest, but as satire, it caught people's attention. Almost 20 years later, with this lesson in mind, the 39-year-old Moore began writing and selling humorous stories to the local Lexington newspapers. They were so popular that Henry Duncan, owner of the Lexington Daily Press, offered Moore a position as a staff reporter in the late 1870s. This seemed like the perfect job for Moore. However, as an avowed atheist and prohibitionist in the bluegrass region of Kentucky, known for religion and distilleries, Moore's writing was sure to create waves. Those who drank or were religiously devout were often at the receiving end of his sarcastic wit. When Moore wrote a scathing essay criticizing a popular preacher, Thomas DeWitt Talmadge, the complaints it received became too much for Henry Duncan. He fired Charles Moore immediately. Undeterred, Moore took his essays over to the competing Lexington Daily Transcript. The transcript editor had seen what Moore's controversy had done to bolster his competitor's readership and hoped it would do the same for him. But along with more readers, Moore brought the same high number of complaints. Inevitably, the editor at the Daily Transcript grew tired of the angry responses to Moore's acerbic articles, no matter the number of readers he lured. 
But by that time, Henry Duncan was ready to hire more back at the Daily Press. He spent the next four or five years ping-ponging between the two papers. As he saw it, neither editor wanted to deal with the protests over what he wrote, but neither wanted to lose his readers to the competition. Eventually, however, both papers reached their limit over the outpouring of complaints. From then on, anything Moore wrote was carefully looked over and heavily edited. Moore's religious essays were stripped of all meaning. His teetotaling reports on barroom brawls, usually featuring prominent citizens, went entirely unpublished. In the summer of 1884, 46-year-old Charles Moore had had enough. He helped grow the readership of both papers, and in return, they censored him. After a blow-up regarding an over-edited article, Moore stormed out of the newspaper office, furious. As he set out for his usual Saturday night walk home from Lexington, he considered his options. About two miles into his trek, it occurred to Moore that the only way to make sure his essays and articles made it to print was to be his own editor. He could start his own newspaper. The name Bluegrass Blade immediately popped into his head. It combined the name of the region with the idea of creating a paper that would cut through the restrictions of more traditional publications. Moore could devote his paper to the principles of the free thought movement. Free thought is a philosophical stance that reason, logic, and science should define truth, not dogma or tradition. Many in the free thought movement were agnostic or atheist like Moore, but some belonged to more liberal faith traditions. They believed in God, but did not believe that the Bible was inerrant. Regardless of religious belief, the freethinkers were all active in social reform causes, such as women's suffrage, civil rights, poverty relief, and sex education, and for many, including more, prohibition. The push to prohibit the sale of alcohol in the United States was seen as a progressive cause at the time. Prohibitionists saw the abuse of alcohol as a contributing factor for domestic violence and poverty and thus banning booze would further the other social reforms they believed in. Moore knew that his bluegrass blade could advocate for these causes. But Charles Moore wasn't a printer or a publisher. He was a writer, and handling both jobs simultaneously would leave him with no time to put pen to paper. He found his solution in advertisements. Soon, Moore realized that by cramming the margins of the paper with ads, he could afford to outsource the design and printing to a local man named J.M. Burns. With Burns handling the production, Moore was free to focus on the content. The initial run of Bluegrass Blade began in 1884. Moore charged $1 for a year's subscription, a little over $25 today, in its first incarnation, Bluegrass Blade focused on Moore's views on church hypocrisy and the inconsistencies in the Bible. No copies of the first run of Bluegrass Blade have survived. We can only rely on Moore's later recollections about the contents. 
However, he claimed he dedicated the early issues to a scathing critique of famed revivalist Samuel Porter Jones. Jones traveled throughout the U.S., particularly the South, preaching to large crowds upwards of three times a day. He never charged admission to any of his services, relying instead on donations. It's not entirely clear what about Sam Jones drew Moore's ire any more than any other Christian revivalist. Jones, a recovering alcoholic, preached temperance, which Moore agreed with. Jones was also known for his saying, quit your meanness, believing a lot of hurt in the world would be cured with more kindness. This too was something Moore actively promoted. But because Jones's sermons drew such large crowds, what he did earn from donations was considerable. Moore accused him of being in the ministry for the money alone. He called him a hypocrite. Sam Jones was a very popular preacher, and Moore's heated commentary offended many of his followers. Jones's disgruntled congregation held a meeting at the county courthouse to determine what to do about Bluegrass Blade. The backlash from the community wore on Moore and his wife. One young man even assaulted him on the street. As much as he hated how his former editors had censored him, Moore now realized that they had shielded him from the weight of negative public opinion. Finally, he had had enough. Moore decided to stop publishing The Blade after only three issues and refunded the subscribers the balance of their money. In early 1886, 49-year-old Moore made another attempt, but the reprint lasted only a few issues before he halted production again due to the onslaught of criticism. After he shuttered the paper, Moore turned his writing talents to books. In 1890, he published The Rational View, in which he advocated for free thought and attacked the supernaturality of religion. The book was a hit. Confident with the success of The Rational View, 53-year-old Moore started Bluegrass Blade one more time in the fall of 1890. He was determined to keep printing, regardless of the criticism he knew to expect. He had no idea that his commitment to the paper would lead to his arrest five times over. Up next, Charles Moore becomes Kentucky's most hated man. Now back to the story. In 1884, 46-year-old Charles Chilton Moore began an anti-religion prohibition paper he called Bluegrass Blade. But before he became Kentucky's most famous infidel, Moore got his start as a minister in the Church of Christ. Charles Chilton Moore was born into antebellum luxury in December of 1837. As the family's only surviving son, he never had to worry about how he would make money. His family's estate would always support him. With this freedom, Moore decided to pursue a future in the church. Moore's grandfather, Barton W. Stone, founded the Church of Christ in 1832. Stone was a biblical literalist and believed the scripture was meant to be taken as unequivocal truth. He passed these beliefs on to Charles Moore. 
1861, 23-year-old Moore was ordained as a minister in the Church of Christ. His first assignment was as a missionary in the mountainous area of Richmond, Kentucky. But his time there was cut short by the outbreak of the Civil War. When the fighting moved on from Kentucky in 1863, 25-year-old Moore decided to examine his faith through a more academic lens. He began an intense study of the Bible and biology, trying to use his knowledge of science and the natural world to prove the scriptures' literal truths. The infallibility of the Bible was a main tenet in the teachings of the Church of Christ, and thus a particularly important undertaking for Moore. He spent whole days in the spring of 1863 poring over scripture and text. During this time, a distant relative, William Hatch, came to visit. He was a skeptic when it came to religion, a self-described non-believer. Moore thought he was the perfect person to test his evidence-based preaching on. When Hatch saw Moore's proofs, he would undoubtedly convert. The two men selected books that were both for and against the literal interpretation of the Bible. One of these books was Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species, the first book that proposed natural evolution instead of divine creation. The other two books, selected in defense of the Bible, were published in direct response to The Origin of Species. The last book was called the Pentateuch and the Book of Joshua Critically Examined, written by Anglican Bishop John William Colenso. It pointed out several inconsistencies found in the first six books of the Old Testament. Bishop Colenso's goal was not to preach against the Bible, but rather preach against its literal interpretation and infallibility. Over the next six weeks, the men engaged in eight to 12 hours of study a day. And soon this intense examination of the Bible made Charles Moore incredibly anxious. His faith was shaken under scrutiny. He found it difficult to eat and sleep. And by the end of their six weeks of intense debate, Moore spent entire days in bed, finding it hard to move. Worried, his mother called in two doctors. Both diagnosed him with brain fever, a Victorian catch-all diagnosis for any kind of inflammation of the brain. More likely, even according to Moore, he was suffering from a nervous breakdown. Instead of confirming his belief that the Bible was infallible, Moore's study left him feeling the opposite. He was having a true crisis of faith Everything he knew to be true had been stripped away. Moore was terrified to give voice to his disbelief. He leaned heavily on Bishop Colenso's work in an attempt to reconcile his doubts. Even though Bishop Colenso pointed out issues with the first six books of the Bible, he was not advocating for atheism. Instead, he believed the church needed to focus more on the New Testament and the unerring word of Jesus Christ. So Moore took Colenso's suggestion to heart. When he accepted a ministerial position in nearby Versailles, Kentucky in early 1864, he was determined to only preach the New Testament. 
Soon, his skeptic cousin, William Hatch, attended his services. To more surprise, his preaching worked, and Hatch was eventually converted and baptized. But as Hatch's faith grew, 26-year-old Moore only became more skeptical and confused. Even though he limited himself to just the New Testament, he found he still lingered on the inconsistencies just as Bishop Colenso had with the Old Testament. In particular, the contradictions between the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John stood out to Moore. For instance, Matthew wrote that Jesus was a descendant of King David through his son Solomon, while in Luke, the relation is said to have come through David's son Nathan. Many Christians view these small discrepancies as possible translation errors or simple mistakes by the authors, but Moore's Church of Christ faith demanded that the Bible left no room for human error, and thus Moore found these types of contradictions impossible to explain. After being at the Versailles Church for a year, Moore knew he had to step down as a minister. He could not preach something he no longer believed. However, denouncing his faith publicly, particularly as the grandson of the co-founder of the Church of Christ, was something he wanted to avoid at all costs. Moore thought he'd found a way out when the church held their annual election for minister in early 1865. He decided to simply not put his name into the running. This would allow him a quiet exit as a new minister would have to be elected, or at least, that's what he thought. Much to Moore's horror, someone in the congregation put his name forward anyway, and he was re-elected in a landslide. Even the other candidate's family voted for Moore. Now he had to face his decision to leave the ministry head on. He could save face and stay another year, attempting to only preach the principles he still believed in, or he could resign and face the consequences. As a man who always praised honesty above all else, it never would have occurred to Moore to make a fake excuse and quietly resign. Instead, shortly after he was elected minister, 27-year-old Charles Moore gave his last sermon. When he finished, he picked up his hat, walked down the side aisle of the church, and exited through the front door before the service had concluded. He left a confused congregation behind him. Later that evening, Moore met with the church elders and told them that due to his doubts about the Bible, he had no choice but to step down. The men were shocked, but treated him kindly. The men may have been less warm if they knew that Moore would, a decade later, start Bluegrass Blade, a publication he proudly advertised as an infidel paper, a term synonymous with atheism. Though Moore had shuttered the paper twice already by 1890, he was determined not to let criticisms force his hand. He was determined to spread his free-thought message, no matter the heat. So, in the fall of 1890, he returned to his subscribers with the third iteration of Bluegrass Blade. They were so eager for the newest issue that a crowd formed outside the printer on release day. 
The printer watched as more and more people gathered in front of his shop. Worried they would rush the building, he locked the door and stood guard outside. When the issue was finally released, the newspaper boys were able to sell the copies for an inflated price of 25 cents a piece, a significant amount, especially considering a whole year subscription only cost a dollar. This new third incarnation of Bluegrass Blade varied from the first two editions in that it predominantly advocated for prohibition. Moore still published scathing essays against religion, churches, and the Bible, but since the bulk of the four-page paper called for the ban of liquor sales, Moore found an unlikely audience among Christian prohibitionists. One such subscriber was W.T. Ficklin, an elderly member of the Paris First Christian Church in Paris, Kentucky. Ficklin was upset that the pastor of his church, J.S. Sweeney, did not preach in favor of prohibition. Even more insulting, one church elder was a wholesaler of alcoholic beverages. Fed up, Ficklin went to Moore in late 1891, offering to speak as an anonymous source. No church congregation was completely free of scandal, and Ficklin was ready to share everything he knew. He hoped to see his church's hypocrisies laid bare in the pages of the blade. Ficklin got his wish on January 23, 1892. Moore wrote a scathing expose, accusing the church of working with whiskey makers for the sake of profit, comparing them to Judas, betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He continued to skewer Paris Christian Church, claiming that the scandals that took place within its walls were even more evil than what went on in the house of Bell Breezing, a well-known brothel owner. This issue of the blade not only sold out, it invited even more insight on the church's dark underbelly. Shortly after the first article ran in February 1892, Moore published a letter to the editor charging that Pastor Sweeney's daughter often got drunk in public and that his son-in-law was an alcoholic. Once the papers hit the streets, Pastor J.S. Sweeney was furious and embarrassed. In March of 1892, he made a formal libel complaint against Bluegrass Blade. An arrest warrant was officially issued for Moore, and four vigilantes from the Paris Christian Church hatched a plan to find out who was behind the anonymous letters. If they wanted to take care of the whistleblowers, they would need more to reveal their identities. They intended to beat him senseless until he did. Up next, Charles faces violent threats and his next arrest. Now back to the story. In March of 1892, 55-year-old Charles Chilton Moore faced his most serious charge to date, libel. After airing the scandals of the Paris First Christian Church in his paper, Bluegrass Blade, Moore faced the ire of its congregants. This included a group of vigilantes seeking justice for their disgraced pastor, J.S. Sweeney. 
The Brute Squad wanted the names of the individuals who had provided Moore with such defaming information. But the men couldn't find Moore. He was out of town visiting a friend. However, before he returned, the men learned the source of the information was an elderly member of their church, W.T. Ficklin. Even in their anger, the men couldn't bring themselves to assault an old and respected member of their congregation. The vigilantes decided to abandon their plans of physical retribution against the informant, but they didn't forget about Moore. As soon as he returned to Lexington, the band of men was there to greet him. They hauled Moore from the train station to the jail, demanding justice for Sweeney. Moore was ultimately indicted on two counts of libel for his article. During his trial, the prosecution called a number of witnesses, mostly members of the Paris First Christian Church. The witnesses testified that the statements published in The Blade were untrue and thus hurt their reputations, both parts being necessary to prove a libel claim. Moore, however, refused to participate in the court proceedings and offered no defense. He did not believe a church should be allowed to use the court system to punish a religious critic. And though Moore made this point clear, it did little to save him from the inevitable. He was found guilty, fined $100, the equivalent of nearly $3,000 today, and sentenced to two months in the Paris jail. Moore viewed himself as a political prisoner rather than a criminal one, and there is some indication the jailer saw it this way, too. Rather than spending his two months locked up with the other offenders, Moore was housed in the jailer's home and ate meals with his family. This imprisonment, no matter how comfortable the arrangement, garnered more public attention outside of the bluegrass region for the first time. His story was even picked up by the New York World, a publication with a circulation of more than 600,000. In the coverage of Moore's imprisonment, he and his fellow freethinkers maintained that Moore was imprisoned in violation of his First Amendment rights. The media led more readers than ever to Bluegrass Blade, many of whom lived outside of Kentucky. By March of 1894, 56-year-old Moore had one of the most read papers in Kentucky, Prohibitionist Christians even bought the newspaper to support the teetotaler cause, despite the paper's usual skewering of religion. And those who were not prohibitionists often bought the blade for the entertaining read. If there was a scandal or a hypocritical Christian to be reported on, Moore did so with zeal. But being popular is not the same thing as being liked. Moore's attacks on religious and community leaders were entertaining, but crude. He often cursed and used slang, both considered extremely offensive in the late 19th century, and he loved name-calling. Moore notably referred to King Edward VII as a dirty dog. In the very same article, he called Pope Leo XIII the cowardly pontiff. It was one of these published roasts that led to Moore's next arrest. William Breckinridge, an old neighbor of the Moore family, represented Kentucky in the U.S. House of Representatives. 
He was a Presbyterian, the son of a minister, and gave public speeches about the virtue of chastity. His was a platform of family values. However, Breckenridge was also having a long-term affair with a woman 30 years his junior. Breckenridge was a married man of 47 when he met 17-year-old college student Madeline Pollard in 1884 on a train from Frankfurt to Lexington. Over the next eight years, the two carried on a secret relationship. During this time, Breckenridge had repeatedly told Madeline that he would marry her if he could. So when his wife died in 1892, 25-year-old Madeline kept him to his word and began to prepare for a wedding. Breckenridge put off setting a date for the ceremony, claiming they needed to wait the proper amount of time after his wife's death. However, less than a year after the funeral, in July 1893, he married a different woman of higher social standing. Humiliated, 26-year-old Madeline filed a civil lawsuit against Congressman Breckinridge for breach of promise. She wanted a jury to award her $50,000, the equivalent of $1.5 million today. The trial began on March 8, 1894. The nation's newspapers were watching, including Bluegrass Blade. With the scandalous details of their relationship laid bare, Breckenridge was vilified in the press. Madeline Pollard didn't fare much better as Breckenridge's lawyers painted her as promiscuous. This type of impropriety was exactly what Charles Moore loved to write about. On March 18, 1894, in the middle of the Pollard and Breckenridge trial, Moore published a fiery article about the hypocrisy of the congressman. Moore had previously been accused of blasphemy for asserting that Jesus was a man rather than God, but the true blasphemy, Moore contended, was the fact that Jesus was born of a union similar to the Breckenridge-Pollard affair. The metaphor, which cast God in the role of the lecherous Breckenridge and Mary as the young seductress, was a step too far for some of Moore's readers. And one local minister was outraged enough to take action. He immediately went to the courthouse to swear out a warrant against Moore on charges of blasphemy. Swearing out a warrant was similar to our modern process of filing a criminal complaint, except in the late 19th century, it usually led to an immediate arrest rather than simply triggering an investigation. So without even the simple due diligence of being interviewed by authorities, Charles Moore was arrested again on April 9, 1894. Moore was furious that the charge had been sworn out by a local minister. Once again, a church was using the court to silence him. This time, Moore deliberately chose not to post bond. Later, just as he hoped would happen, his imprisonment once again drew in the national press. Fellow freethinkers took advantage of the coverage, portraying Moore as a man jailed for his lack of religious belief rather than legitimate crimes. Capitalizing on this attention, 
Moore wrote to leading agnostic advocate and attorney Robert Ingersoll, asking him to represent him in court. Ingersoll previously defended another freethinker who was arrested in New Jersey for openly teaching atheism. As a student of freethought, Charles Moore was well aware of this case. He believed his trial was an opportunity to put an end to blasphemy laws once and for all. However, after three months in jail, Moore was released without trial. The judge threw out the case. It turned out that Kentucky didn't even have a blasphemy law. Moore had been arrested for something that wasn't even a crime. But while his arrest did not give Moore the opportunity to challenge blasphemy laws, it did increase his connections with other agnostic and atheist freethinkers nationwide. It was likely through one of these connections that Moore became a distributor of a highly controversial pamphlet called The Law of Population, Its Consequences, and Its Bearing on Human Conduct and Morals. The Law of Population was written by British social reformer Annie Besant. It explored the consequences for families and communities of having more children than they can care for. It was one of the first publications to explore this issue, and Besant advocated birth control as a possible solution. Many moralists at the time not only believed that accessing birth control would encourage promiscuity, but they regarded it as being nearly on par with abortion. Distributing this pamphlet through the mail in the United States was a federal crime. Because of the 1873 Comstock Act, contraceptives were nationally defined as indecent. This meant that when Moore began mailing the pamphlets, he was technically and illegally mailing obscene materials. Mailing obscene materials is still a crime, though the definition of obscene has changed greatly over the last 150 years. In the late 19th century, obscenity was defined as anything that would deprave and corrupt those whose minds were open to immoral influences. It was in this conservative climate that Moore openly advertised for the law of population in August 1895 in Bluegrass Blade. The very first line of the advertisement marketed it as a book that would educate women on how to prevent having children, a piece of knowledge marked at only 25 cents. Almost immediately after publishing, subscribers complained to the Lexington Postmaster about the advertisement. Unsure what to do, the Postmaster brought in a postal inspector who ordered the ad be suppressed. Moore, as usual, was not deterred by criticisms. The 58-year-old editor simply ran another ad for the book on September 29, 1895. This time, he made no direct reference to birth control, but stated that he intended to print endorsements of the book in future editions. Just a few weeks later, Moore was hauled back into court on federal obscenity charges. The witnesses against Moore included the Lexington Postmaster and several subscribers who received the advertisement in the mail. Moore was ultimately found guilty on 10 charges of sending obscene materials through the Postal Service. 
Judge John Barr levied a fine of $1,000, the equivalent of $30,000 today. However, he suspended payment of the fine if Moore promised not to advertise the law of population ever again. With very few options and a fear of bankrupting his family, Moore agreed to the condition and was released. However, his legal trouble didn't come without consequences. J.M. Burns, the local printer of Bluegrass Blade, saw Charles Moore as a legal liability and immediately canceled his contract. So Moore moved the paper's printing across the Ohio River to Cincinnati. He was convinced that publishing in Ohio would provide him some protection against the arrests and trials that had dogged Bluegrass Blade in Kentucky for years. But as it turned out, his greatest legal battles were still ahead of him. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday to continue our exploration of the fight between the religious leaders of Kentucky and the Bluegrass region's most hated atheist. For more information on Charles Chilton Moore, amongst the many sources we used, we found Kentucky's Most Hated Man by John Sparks, especially helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Not Guilty for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. In the meantime, decide for yourself how much criticism of religion should be tolerated in the press. Is it possible for religious commentary to go too far? Or does the First Amendment protect all speech? And will the jury agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Vanessa Richardson.